You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. We're wrapping up a series called Begin Anew. And in this series, we've been talking about how we can look at the new year and do things a little bit differently in 2024. And and really for us to do things that are new, we need to look at what's been done before, right? We need to examine what's been done before. And one of the things we're going to be talking about today, kind of the theme for today, is legacies. Do you have any legacies that, that you've inherited that have been passed down to you, something that, that you're proud of? Uh, I know for me, I got, uh, I got something that I'm you know, sometimes proud of, sometimes not so much. Here's a picture of my grandfather back in 1978. He attended the 1978 Orange Bowl where we whooped the pants off of Oklahoma. Uh, and we were big, big underdogs. I'm a Razorback fan. I should, I should say that first. I'm an Arkansas Razorback fan. I have an Arkansas Razorback belt on, actually. Uh, so I'm always representing. But my grandfather, he passed down that legacy of being a Razorback fan. And, and my dad as well. So he, he was a, an, an usher for the Little Rock games for over 40 years. He didn't miss a Little Rock, Arkansas game. So he was a, a they, both, of them, both of those men passed that legacy down to me. And my grandfather also, he started an electrical company when he was about 22, 23 years old that, that he owned for almost 70 years. And, and my uncles worked for him. And so I'm a, I like to say I'm a third generation electrician, but I'm really the only one of my brothers that never worked for my grandfather as an electrician. But I like to say that whenever, especially when we're doing electrical work, so then I can uh, show my prowess and, and mess up uh, whatever electrical work that we're doing. But, but he passed down this legacy. And one of the other things he passed down to us, he was, he was somebody who really instilled following Jesus into our family. He was one of the first people in his family to dedicate his life to following Jesus and he raised his kids, my, my mom and my aunt and uncles, to, to do that as well. And, and it's really because of him that I, I grew up in a Christian home. And so there's probably some legacies that you're proud of as well that come from your family, but maybe some that you're not so proud of as well. Maybe your family is not so good with money. Maybe, they, maybe you inherited that legacy and you struggle with money. Maybe you inherited the legacy that you should be really ashamed of. Maybe you're a Texas Longhorn fan and you grew up rooting for those people. Um, yeah, that, that's not something to be proud of. But God is good. You can be forgiven. Um, but maybe, you know, something more serious like like your substance abuse is something that weighs heavily on you. You know that your family has struggled with that, maybe mental illness. And, and we all have legacies that, that we feel the pressure of to live up to or the pressure to outrun and change with our generation. And so today we're going to be talking about a pretty commonly inherited legacy within pretty much all of us. We see that if we don't experience it within ourselves, we probably don't have to look very far with our family members to find it. And it's the legacy of burning bridges with our family or the legacy of estranged relationships with our loved ones. You know, that's, that's too common of a legacy. And there's a psychological sequence that kind of leads to that. And, and I did a little bit, just a little bit of research uh, to, to prep for this. And, and there's a, a psychological sequence of things that we experience that, that lead to estrangement. And, and it first typically begins with anger. And anger is a short-lived emotion that kind of pops up. We get angry, and then we stop being angry. But if the anger persists enough, we, we develop something called resentment. And resentment is it's, it's more long-term. And within resentment, you may even begin to hate 
the person or the group of people. So anger short term, and then you have resentment that's longer term, and out of that resentment, you hate people or those individuals. And something happens, and this is an extreme thing, hopefully nobody's struggling with this today, but an extreme thing when it comes to resentment is that you can dehumanize people. What we know about dehumanization is that the research around dehumanization suggests that when people see others as less than human, empathy centers deactivate in our brain. It actually changes the way that we think. It's a scary thing to think about how quickly somebody can go from angry to resentment to hatred to actually viewing somebody as less than human. And it's more common than we would like to admit. We actually see this play out in the first ever sibling relationship. You know, the story of Cain and Abel, right? And we're going to read a little bit. You know, Cain, he was put in charge of, of, of raising crops, and his brother was in charge of, of tending to the flocks and raising livestock. And Genesis chapter 4, verse 4 says, And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is a short, short story but it's the first ever sibling relationship where these two brothers, Cain quickly goes from being angry to resentment to hatred to dehumanizing his brother to the point that he murders him. This is an extreme story, but, but it's supposed to teach us something about the way our minds and about the way our hearts work. And that we quickly can, can take things that are, that are really not that big of a deal and walk them all the way to the point that we don't even view people as human anymore. That's a scary, scary thing for us to think about. And it's, and it's not uncommon. We see it about 20-ish generations later in the same family. We see this happen in, the ne- in that generation and the next generation and the next. And Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, you may be familiar with those stories. And we have this, another sibling relationship of Jacob and Esau. It's found in Genesis chapter 27 where Jacob, he stills in chapter 25, brother, he steals his older brother's inheritance. He tricks his older brother and make it, makes a deal with him and says, hey, if you do this, if I do this for you, then you have to give me what's coming to you when our father passes away. And Esau, he, 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 he caves and he, and he gives Jacob what he wants. And then Jacob later on in chapter 27, he steals his older brother's blessing, the covenant blessing that's supposed to be passed down from the firstborn to the next firstborn to the next firstborn. And Esau, he's so angry about this. Something crazy happens in chapter 27 that, that we can be familiar with. In verse 41, it says that Esau held a grudge against Jacob. Because of the blessing his father had given him, he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told that her older son Esau had said when she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran, 
Stay for a while there until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? This is a common thing where brothers get angry at each other, where family members get angry at each other. And it may not get to the point that we see here early on in Scripture where, where they are planning to murder each other. Hopefully that's nobody here and that's not your situation. But you can understand where you are fighting over things. And, and don't get me wrong, it, it's, it's an election year. I don't know if you knew that or not. But you probably are going to have some conversations this year that are going to lead to anger with loved ones. You're going to disagree in ways that, that, that evoke emotions that are strong. And you're probably going to experience different things, if, if not this year, in the, in the years to come with people that you love dearly, that you grew up with, it, that you hold very close to you, but some things are probably going to happen that's going to tempt you to do what happens in these family relationships, where you're going to get angry, and you may, that may lead to resentment, and that resentment may hold on long enough that, that hatred seeps in to that family dynamic. That's a difficult, difficult thing to deal with. But something we're going to talk about that we probably all see and maybe even experience firsthand is estrangement. See, what happens a lot of times, we stop short of murdering our family. And what's uh, probably a, a little bit better of an alternative is we become estranged from them. And just to give us a definition of estrangement so we're on the same page, it refers to a broken or disrupted family relationship in which family members have reduced or stopped communicating and interacting with each other. That's from Tanya J. Peterson, who wrote, who wrote an article about estrangement. That may be something that, that you're familiar with. It may be something you're experiencing here and now, where, where people you grew up with, that you love, that are in your family, but you haven't talked to for a while. You're estranged from them, or at least you may know some people in your family that, that haven't talked to each other, that are estranged for one another. If you're not sold on the fact that this is bad, I'm, let, me, let me be ultra clear. Estrangement isn't good. And what psychology tells us about the effects of that is, is that it leads to a sense of grief and loss for the person experiencing estrangement. It leads to anxiety, separation anxiety, pervasive sadness, loneliness, depression, just this general ambiguous sense of loss, feelings of being left out or even vilified by family negative emotions and mood, a decreased ability to self-regulate your emotions, and ongoing trust issues in other relationships. And you begin to ruminate about problems with other family relationships. It's a terrible thing to be experiencing estrangement. And I think in our society, in our family culture, and the dynamics existing within the modern American family, estrangement is too common. And you can look at this list of psychological effects and think, yeah, that's, I see that happening all the time. I may experience that from time to time. I want us to make the connection this morning to, to, to maybe you experiencing some of these things or people that you care about experiencing these psychological effects and tie it to maybe some estranged relationships that you need to address. Some family members that, that you hold dear that you need to restore those relationships. And, and we see uh, this play out and, and continues on in this family of, of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's kids. And Jacob, he goes on to have 12 kids and they continue the legacy 
of hating their brother. And they continue the legacy of having desire to murder their siblings. In Genesis chapter 37, we see uh, the 12 kids pop up and their story begins. Now Israel, which is Jacob's new name, he loved Joseph, which was one of his 12 sons. He was the 11th son and he loved them more of any of the other sons. That's probably not a good start to have a good brotherly dynamic because he had been bored to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him, an amazing technicolor dream coat. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated their brother. And they could not speak a kind word to him. That Hebrew word hate right there. What it means is, is it, it means scorn, or it means that they changed his status, that they decreased his status, that they demoted him of, of them being their brother, and they changed his status to him being their enemy. That's an intense emotion, where you look at somebody differently. You no longer see them as a part of your family, but you actually see them as somebody who's opposed to you. That happens all the time, though. That happens a lot where we're, we, have, we should have this immense love for somebody, but instead our perverse hearts change it and we change their status from somebody that's close to us to somebody that we wish were, were far away and an enemy and somebody opposed to us. The brothers hate Joseph. And Joseph, you know, he, he's a little bit of a tattletale. We didn't read this part of the story, but Joseph, the story starts out with Joseph. He gives a bad report about his brothers to his dad. And that's kind of, he's, he's the informant for the family. And so his brothers don't like this very much. And, and, uh, and the story continues where, where he is, is told to go and to look after or f- figure out where his brothers are and what they're doing because they're out tending to the flocks. And so Jacob sends Joseph to go give a report after finding his brothers. Well, as he approaches them, he had, he had already, so I've skipped this part, but the, <laughs> he had had some dreams where the whole family bows down to him. And so the combination of him being a tattletale and him having these dreams about the whole family bowing down to him, they didn't like that very much. And they already viewed him as their enemy and they already hated him and they already plotted to kill him. So they just only ramped up those negative emotions even more and resentment set in and dehumanization set in for these brothers. So as Joseph is approaching his brothers to, to, to connect with them and give, them, give, his father, give their father a report on what, how they're doing out tending the flocks, his brothers plan to kill their brother. And one of the brothers says, hey guys, that's not a good idea. Let's just throw them in this pit and we'll figure out what to do with them later. And then as these Ishmaelite traders are, are passing by, they say, hey, we figured it out. Let's, let's, instead of killing them, let's just sell them into slavery. And then we'll trick our father and tell him that a wild animal killed him. And that's what happens. And Joseph is sold into slavery and he's carried off. And, and you may know this story where, where, where in slavery, he's promoted to being in charge of this household that's a, that's a very powerful household. But then he's falsely accused of some bad stuff and he's thrown into prison. And in prison, he's interpreting some dreams and he gets an opportunity to maybe get out of prison, but then he's forgotten about And then he has the opportunity to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
And because of his interpretation of the dreams that he interpreted and uh, these dreams that were foretelling and his prophecy of, of this famine that was about to cover the whole earth and, and because of him interpreting those dreams, Pharaoh says, God, you, God is, is, is upon you and I want to push you in a position of power and influence and he's promoted to being the second most powerful guy probably on the planet in that point in history. And because of their anticipation of this famine, they're able to plan and the whole world is able to come and to survive and come to Egypt for food when there was no food to be found anywhere else. And Joseph went from being a brother in his father's household to being plotted to be murdered by his brothers, but then sold into slavery and then imprisoned and then promoted. And now he is ruling for all intents and purposes over the greatest kingdom at that time. And the whole world is coming to him for salvation from this famine. And his brothers, they're, they're not immune to this famine, and so they, they go to Egypt, and they think that their brother's long gone. And the youngest brother, Benjamin, that's Joseph's full brother, he stays at home with his dad. The other 10 brothers, they go, and they find themselves face-to-face with Joseph. It's been a decade. They don't recognize Joseph. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He has all this power. The last time they saw him, he was carried off in chains. And they're standing there, and they are desiring to be, to be rescued from starving to death. And, and Joseph, he, he gives them f- some food. He toys with them a little bit. You can read that story. It's really interesting. I'm not sure. Uh, I can't tell you why it happened the way that happened. They toyed with them, and he toyed with them in a way that got his younger brother to come with them a second time. And there they are, all the brothers standing together for the first time in over a decade. And they're standing there, his brother's starving to death, standing there in front of their brother that they don't see as their brother, who has all the power in the world, has the power to to give them what they need, to have the power to, to also condemn them to death. You think about that. Think about it. I know it's a far stretch for some of you. Some of you, not so much. You plan to kill your brother. You don't. You sell him into slavery. And then you're standing before your brother unknowingly. What do you think your brother would do to you? He's experienced a decade, your brother has experienced a decade of being, of being in prison and enslaved and falsely accused. And, 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 and you, you, you know that your brother's wanted to kill you, but they, they sent you to a fate that in a lot of ways is worse than just being killed. Can you imagine that? And Joseph is standing there with the power to, to exact revenge and deliver justice to the people that sold him into slavery, the people that wanted him dead, the people that hated him, that viewed him as an enemy. And he's standing there with all the power in the world to do exactly just that. It's a crazy, crazy scene, if you can imagine. Genesis chapter 45, if you want to flip over there, that's where we see how Joseph handles this situation. And Joseph... Verse 1, he could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph's facade of being this powerful ruler, hiding his true identity, it crumbles under the emotion that he's experiencing. 
And he can't handle it anymore. That, that, that word there means that, that he could no longer toward, he could no, no longer pluck up enough courage, he could no longer venture into keeping up this facade of him being this rich, powerful ruler that was delivering life to the whole world. He could, he could no longer keep up that facade. He knew who he really was, and, and that facade crumbled, and he weeps so loudly that the whole kingdom heard about it. I don't know what emotions he was experiencing exactly. Maybe he was angry and, and he is weeping because of the immense anger and thinking about all the ways that he could get back at his brothers. Maybe, maybe that's it. I, I, don't, I don't think so. Maybe it's grief and sadness. He had lost a decade of time with his family, his loved ones, and spent that decade in, in experiencing so many difficult things. It was grief and sadness. Maybe, maybe it was joy of seeing his family again, of being in a place for so long without knowing anybody, not having any loved ones, experiencing so many difficult things. He was overjoyed at God's goodness and providence over the course of that time, bringing him to that moment. I, I, I don't know the emotion, but what I do know is that he was overwhelmed by whatever that emotion was. He was overcome by it, and his facade crumbles, and he began to weep. I'm a, I'm a weeper. That's one of the legacies I inherited from my dad. Is my mom would always say, your dad clock cries at the 5 o'clock news, is what she would say. <laughs> I don't know if the 5 o'clock news exists anymore, but I'm sure I would cry at it. And he's, Joseph is weeping so loudly that people hear about it and they're talking about it. In verse 3, this story continues, and Joseph said to his brothers, as he's weeping, he's saying, I... And Joseph reveals himself. He says, is my father still alive? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. You have this stark contrast to how Joseph was handling this reunion and how his brothers, whenever it was revealed who Joseph was, how they handled the reunion and says that they were terrified. Why? Why were they terrified? Because they were standing before the, the person that they wronged, the person they dehumanized to the point of wanting to murder them and then enslave them, the person that they tricked their father into thinking was dead and tried to put his existence in the rearview mirror. They were standing before him, and they realized this guy is all-powerful. This guy has the power to withhold any sort of compassion, and we are doomed to death if this guy gives us what's owed us. And they're terrified because they know how much they wronged this guy. They know how much they betrayed him. They know that he's experienced a terrible, terrible experience. He has all the power in the world to deliver justice in that moment. His brothers, he had, they had given up on a relationship with Joseph a long time ago. They had abandoned the idea of brotherhood. They had decreased his status from being a brother, somebody that they cared for, to somebody that they hated and viewed as an enemy. They had abandoned it a long, long time ago. And they were standing before Joseph. And, and something I want to make a connection with ultra clear is that Joseph was powerful and he had the right to judge them in that moment. And what we know about God, what we know about Scripture, is that God is also a powerful, more powerful, and more righteous judge. That when we stand before God, we may experience 
some of the emotions, when we think about God, when we think about who we are and who he is, we may stand there terrified when we think about him. We, some of us may avoid Christian people that, that exude the love of Christ, and we, we may avoid church. You're, you may be here, you may be trying out church for the first time in a while. You may avoid those different situations because you know this to be true. You know that, that God is a powerful and righteous judge, and that when you stand before him, you're in trouble. You're in big, big trouble. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we, we get some half encouraging, half convicting news from God. And Moses, Scott referenced this last week, where Moses says, I want to see your glory. And so when God reveals his glory, this is what God says to Moses. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. If you know anything about the family of Jacob, the family of God, the nation of Israel, it started with Abraham, the covenant blessing was passed on to Isaac. Covenant blessing was stolen from Esau to Jacob. And it was being passed down to those children. It's the fourth, the story that we're reading is the fourth generation of the nation of Israel, the fourth generation of Abraham's family, God's chosen people. And we have the scene where Joseph is standing in front of his brothers and he is standing there as, as a person that, that was condemned to die and con condemned to live a life of slavery. He can deliver justice to his brothers that are guilty and wicked and rebellious. And in that moment, he has the power to do what, what most judges would do and condemn them to death. He should not let the guilty go unpunished. But Joseph knew about God. and He was faithful enough and he was connected enough to God. And God's spirit was with him enough. That he also understood the first part of Exodus 34. He understood that God was compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining loves to the thousands, to thousands of generations. It dwarfs God's punishment to the third and fourth generation. That God's love dwarfs that and he maintains love to thousands of generations. And Joseph, in that moment, we see him react. In verse 4 of Genesis 45, he said to his brothers, Come close to me. Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. In that moment, Joseph could have condemned them to die. He could have sent them home without any food. He could have tortured them to death. Nobody would have blamed him. But Joseph, even though his brothers had given up on his brotherhood a long time ago, even though they had demoted his status for being a brother to being an enemy, even though they desired to murder him and plotted to him, and they sold him into slavery, even though Joseph experienced terrible things because of what they did to him, he never forgot or gave up on brotherhood. He always was looking to restore. And when the moment he's overwhelmed with emotion, and I imagine what he's experiencing is an opportunity to restore relationship, 
a real relationship, not just in his heart, forgive his brothers and maybe not ever see them again, but he is overwhelmed with the emotion of his brothers being in front of him and him being to actually really, truly restore relationship and brotherhood with them. He took a big risk and a big step in faith and, re- and, and it revealed who he really was. And Joseph, he he said in verse five, he says, now and do not be distressed. He goes the extra mile and he's trying to put them at ease and he says, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. Whoa, he's saying, you murdered me, but don't be, don't be mad, guys. Don't be angry with yourselves. He's expressing the kind of gracious love and compassion that God has for us. He says, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you And for two years now, there had been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and no reaping. The famine is going to continue. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Joseph, in this moment, chooses to focus. And I have to imagine, over the course of that decade, He continually chose to focus on God's intent and purpose of having him right where he was as opposed to him dwelling and being angry and letting that anger grow to resentment and letting that resentment grow to hatred and then hatred grow to to dehumanization. Instead, he focused on God's intent of why he was there. And when the opportunity came, he viewed his brothers as not only humans, but brothers in which he desired so desperately to be restored to, to have a relationship with. What an amazing, amazing demonstration of how God feels about us. Joseph desires to bless his family that cursed him to slavery. And he desires a real relationship with them. In verse 12, he says, You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, his full-blooded brother, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen. And bring my father down here quickly. He desires for his brothers to see it really is him. And he's offering real forgiveness and real restoration and real relationship with them. And that he has not given up on brotherhood, even though that they had given up on brotherhood a long time ago. Verse 14, then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. I want you to understand the emotion attached with this scene. That the amount of forgiveness that was offered by Joseph to his brothers. And the things that he had experienced and and the strength that he had to to not focus on that, but to focus on on all that God had did through him to lead him up to that moment. And and he didn't didn't brag about all these different things. He he was so focused on restoring relationships. He he, he put himself in a position of vulnerability by by weeping, and, and he restores relationship with his brothers. What an amazing, amazing thing. We, we, we see this legacy. You know, Joseph, he broke the cycle of, of that legacy of brothers getting angry with each other 
and hating each other and wanting to murder each other. And he said, no more. I'm stopping that legacy right here, right now. I'm going to restore relationship. And things are going to be different. And the brothers go on to live in peace and harmony, and, and, and God blesses them in the land of Egypt. But it doesn't take long for this legacy to pop back up in this family. In the time of Jesus, we see it rear its ugly head in a, in a real way that's, that's bigger than just a, a family, an individual family. It's, it's reached the societal and political level. And when Jesus starts to proclaim that he's the, that he's the son of God, then the people start saying he's the Messiah, the people that are in charge of their religion and their society, they hate him. They, they, they get angry with him. They hate him. They resent him. And they get to the point where they put him on a cross. And they kill him. And Jesus, echoing the way that Joseph felt about his brothers, he's hanging there on the cross and being the ultimate demonstration of love and, and restoring brotherhood and relationship. He says to God, he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. And we see the story of Joseph pointing to the gospel that God so desperately wants to have a relationship with you. That Jesus, he never gives up on a relationship with his, with his murderers. That he went to the cross for the people that, that put him there, that put the nails in his hands. He went to the cross for them so he could restore a relationship with them, but with all mankind. If you don't know this, this is probably the most important thing for you to know in your life, is that God has not given up on a relationship with you. All of your loved ones, you may feel as if all of your loved ones have given up on a relationship with you. You've just really messed things up and people have, have put you at an arm's length and they ask you to not be a part of their lives anymore. That's not God. God views relationships differently. Everybody that you've ever cared about may be estranged from you and they don't want to have anything to do with you. God wants, have, he wants everything to do with you. He desperately wants a relationship with you. So much that he sent Jesus to demonstrate how much he loves you, that he seeks after you. You may feel estranged from God. God is not estranged from you. You may feel like an enemy of God, but God sent Jesus to die for his enemies. You may feel like God is angry with you, but he put his own anger on his own son because of how much he loves you. And the God that has every right in the world to condemn you to an eternity separated from him chose to send his own son to bridge that gap. So you have the opportunity to have a restored relationship, a real, true, full relationship with your creator. God desperately wants to have a relationship with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 we're encouraged of how this is supposed to change our lives, how it's supposed to allow us to begin anew. And the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians at Corinth, he says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. The worldly point of view is that people wrong us, we, we wrong them, or we don't like them. We, we don't regard each other like that anymore. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All of this is from God. It can come from nowhere else. It's from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That God was reconciling the whole world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed us to this message of reconciliation. He's given us this privilege to talk about this and to participate in it. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We represent him as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No matter who you are or what you've done, God is asking you to begin anew through Christ. And you may feel like you've done that a long time ago, but things are different now. A lot of time has passed. A lot of things have changed. You've, you've messed up a lot. God is still asking you to begin anew. And you're, he's never left. He's never abandoned you. you even though that you may have think that you've become an enemy of God and that you trusted in Jesus a long time ago and you've, you've strayed from that, God has been with you every single step of the way and been faithful to you even when you haven't been faithful to him. And it's through Christ that you can begin anew today. Because of Jesus, our relationship with God can be restored. In Christ, your wickedness, your rebellion, where you fall short, your sin is washed away. And because of Christ and what he's done, you are now covered in the righteousness of God. And when he looks at you, he doesn't see where you fall short. He sees his son. And he sees where he fulfilled all the commands of God, where he never disobeyed and he did everything a human is supposed to do in their life. And he offers you a new life where you can view other people that way. He offers you the opportunity where you can participate in this ministry of reconciliation and you can tell other people, you can be restored to God. He, he asks you, participate in this with Christ and be, and be a demonstration that through Christ you can have a relationship with God. But some of us, we fall short of fully participating in that because we've given up on some relationships. Like Joseph's brothers, we allow our emotions and anger and things like that to give up on people close to us. I'm asking you this morning, don't give up on relationships. We serve a God, we believe in a Savior that hasn't given up on a relationship with you or anybody else. He's asking us to follow him and not giving up on relationships with others. Uh, just a small disclaimer about boundaries and toxic relationships. That's a whole other series. Spent a long time on that. That's, that's not what we're talking about this morning. And, but God is asking you to participate in a real way. And, and I couldn't help but be reminded of this story that I got to experience and see firsthand. My, here's a picture. And yes, this is a picture of another uh, Razorback event. All I have is pictures of people at Razorback games. Um, this is my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, and my wife, Carrie. For the better part of a decade, uh, when I first started dating Carrie, the decade leading up to that, he had been estranged from his only sibling, his sister. They hadn't talked for about a decade. Some things that were really started out kind of small and blew up, and he just stopped being invited to, to birthdays and holidays and things like that. And, and Carrie, being the Christ father that, that she is, the, the, the lover of people that, that she is, decided to take it upon herself and to try to do something about that. And so she went to my, or went to her aunt, 
and said, hey, I, I would like to, to get together with y'all and I would like for my dad to be there. And they got together and I had the privilege to be there and to, and to, and to participate in this meal and, and we gathered at Cracker Barrel where all things can be restored, you know. <laughs> and because of their generation and their personality, they just acted like the time hadn't passed. And in their own way, they restored a relationship and and they ate together, and, and after that, my, my father-in-law was invited to all the birthdays, all the Christmases, all the Thanksgivings. They would talk to each other on Facebook, and it was great to see that relationship restored. But in fall of 2022, Carrie's aunt got sick, and she had been in bad health for, for a, a, a long time, and so she was in and out of the hospital all the time, but this time she didn't come out of the hospital, and she passed away. And I remember sitting in the pew behind my father-in-law, and at this point, like, he's, he's got Parkinson's pretty bad, and I see him shaking in the pew in front of me and him weeping. I don't know what he was thinking about during that time, but I know he's probably missing his sister, and maybe you're thinking about the decade where they didn't talk and didn't have a relationship. And, and two months later on Christmas Eve, my father-in-law passed away. And I'm so glad that, like, my wife loves people the way that she does, and loved her dad, and loved her aunt enough that, that he reached, that she reached out and, and, helped, and followed Jesus and, and seeking reconciliation for these people she loved. I'm going to tell you this. The time lost, the hurt, the feeling, and the sense of you being in the right and you being on the right side of the argument and that righteous indignation you may have with the strange relationships, it ain't worth it. It ain't worth it. God is asking us to begin anew with our loved ones that we haven't talked to for a while, the people that have hurt us, the people that we know that we're right in our, whatever argument we had a decade ago, He's asking us to seek a relationship because the truth is, is that God sought a relationship with us when we, while we were still his enemies, when we were demoted from being a son or daughter of God, we were his enemy. And he sent Jesus to die for us so that we can be reconciled to him. And he says, I will be your father and you will be a co-heir with Christ and you will spend eternity in relationship in my presence with me. And I'm asking you in this life to do that for other people to restore relationships, to demonstrate the good news that no matter who you are or what you've done, that God desires to restore a relationship with you. He wants you to participate in that. Who do you need to restore a relationship with? Who are you estranged from? Loved ones, people you grew up with, people that helped raise you. It's not worth letting another day go by. It's not. But what is worth it 
is risking that and stepping in and trying to restore. It may take time. It may take other people. It may take conversations that you can't be a part of. But by the power of God and the Holy Spirit at work, what we see is those walls come crumbling down. And we have the opportunity and, and we can pray and prepare for the opportunity where they stand in front of us and we say, come close. It's me. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. It's me. Let's have a relationship again because God has done something in my life and I have a relationship with him I know that I don't deserve. He's asking us to fully participate in it, to seek after people and restore relationship. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for your son and the fact that you are slow to anger. You are faithful and loving to thousands of generations. And I say, you take my heart and soften it to the people that you love and desire a relationship with. And help me to follow you in that and to desire a relationship with the people that I harbor resentment for, that I may be angry with, and melt my heart, Father. Give me your heart. Exchange my broken, resentful quick to anger heart and give me yours. Help me to seek out the people that you die for, that you desperately want a relationship with, and help me to desire the same things. Help me to set aside all that emotion. I pray for the people in this room that, that this week we can celebrate relationships restored, that people will take the difficult step of picking up the phone and having conversations and maybe even begin the long, long road to restoration. I pray that you just give us faith, give us boldness. Thank you so much that that's our story with you. Help us to celebrate that with every fiber of our being every day. Thank you so much for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.